Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Well, I want to ask you a personal question today. Not really that personal, but uh, do you have a nickname? Maybe you grew up with one, or your parents gave you one, or your friends gave you one, or a, a specific event you know, that happened to you gave you a nickname. Go ahead and comment in the chat if you're watching live, or you can comment in the comment section below, no matter when you're watching. Just let us know what your nickname is or was. Now remember, let's keep it G-rated, people. So if it's you know questionable, clean it up and then post it, because uh, you know how sometimes nicknames can be. But do you have a nickname or did you have a nickname? Is there a different name that you are known by other than maybe your real name? Maybe even someone's comment is going to be like, oh, so your name's not whatever it is, so who knows. Uh, But the person that we're going to talk about today actually has a couple of nicknames. So we're in this series called 12 that we're looking at the original 12 disciples of Jesus, the original followers of Jesus. And this is week five. And again, we're looking at a disciple who has two nicknames. One of them he was called in his day and age, and the other one we would know him by. Uh, And so today we're talking about the disciple Thomas. We're talking about Thomas. Now, as we'll see as we look at his life for a few minutes today, we will see that his original nickname, the one he was known by and called by the disciples, maybe by Jesus, was the twin or twin. So apparently Thomas had a twin and was a twin. That was what he was called. We don't know anything about that except that that was his nickname. However, what we probably know Thomas, uh, his nickname more being, is Doubting Thomas. So maybe you can empathize with Thomas because that was that's probably a nickname he wished he wasn't known for. So maybe your nickname is one you're like, oh, I wish they would stop calling me that or they never stop calling me that or that nickname makes me think of a, a bad memory or an embarrassing moment, that sort of thing. So maybe you can empathize with Thomas and where he is being called Doubting Thomas. What a, kind of a terrible nickname. But it did fit him fairly well. We don't know a lot about Thomas. We only read personally about him in John's gospel, John's biography about Jesus. And we're going to look at three different accounts about Thomas in the first half of our time together today. And then the second half will be how we are like Thomas and what, we, what that means for us and what we do about it. So really all three accounts that we read in detail about Thomas happen in the last couple weeks of the life of Jesus. And two of them happen like in a couple days within a few days or a week or so of each other, uh, one right before Jesus' death and one after his resurrection. So we'll, we'll talk about these three accounts of Thomas and see how, yeah, we can understand where the name Doubting Thomas came from uh, and why, uh, but he was kind of a worst-case scenario kind of guy, kind of a Debbie Downer, as we'll see here in a minute, and he had some doubts. He had some questions. He didn't have everything figured out. As we'll see in a minute, he asked maybe some silly, a silly question 
uh, and just a lot of things going on up there that he was trying to figure things out. And really, as much as we would say, well, where's your faith, Thomas? We're a lot like him, and we'll see that today. So let's look for a few minutes at these three accounts. Then again, we'll look in the second half about how we're like him and what that means, what we do about that. So this first story that involves Thomas is in a story that we talked about on Easter just a few weeks ago, and that's the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. So in John 11, we know that Jesus travels with his disciples. He gets word that his friend Lazarus is sick, almost dead. He waits a couple days where he is and then travels to where they live outside of Jerusalem to raise Lazarus from the dead because he's died. So the part where Thomas is involved is before, before they leave to go to this town called Bethany just outside of Jerusalem. Because as we'll see here, they've left Jerusalem recently because Jesus was nearly stoned to death. They tried to kill him, and he left really not because he was afraid or hiding, but because he knew it wasn't the right time yet. But now he's saying, let's go back right out in the suburbs of Jerusalem, basically, to take care of this problem. And Thomas and the disciples, they have an issue with that. This is John chapter 11, starting at verse number 7. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? And then skip down to verse 16. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, there it is, said to his fellow disciples, let's go to and die with Jesus. I can just imagine if there were sound effects in the Bible, it would be a wah, 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 wah. You know, he's like, let's go die. Now, there is a positive here, and that is, even in the face of possible death or threats or danger, Thomas didn't desert Jesus. So he didn't say, yeah, you go ahead and go, and we'll see how that turns out. Yeah, you're going to go into a trap. You're going to go you know, like right next door to where we were nearly killed a few days ago. Mm, have fun with that. I'm going to lay back. No, he said, let's go with them, guys, and let's die too. So at least there's a little bit of positivity here, but we do see quite a bit of doubt. He should really know better. Like Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows the risk. He knows the possibility, and yet... He, he's still alive, right? He's still in one piece. So he's going to, he knows the right timing. That's the whole point. So Thomas here does show a little bit of lack of faith. He should know better, which is sort of building up this reputation for doubting Thomas. The second time that we read about Thomas is during the Last Supper, during this Passover meal with Jesus and his 12 disciples. Jesus is basically in John 14 saying, hey guys, I'm about to leave about to go away. Uh, we, again, we talked about this in our previous series as well, um, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Building up to this, Thomas says something uh, that we didn't talk about before, so let's talk about it now. So this is, again, John 14, starting at verse number one. Jesus is speaking here, you know, giving this sort of last speech, this last hurrah. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am and you know the way to where I am going. Verse 5. No, we, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? Again, Thomas here has some questions. He's a little confused with what Jesus is saying. 
he's a little disoriented with what Jesus is saying. What, what are you talking about? What do you mean you're going somewhere? What are you, where, where are you going? And you say, we know how to get there. Are you going to give us all GPS devices? Are you going to give us a map? Like, what are you talking about? Where are you going? How in the world do you think that we know how to get there if we don't even know where you're going? So this should also not surprise Thomas because Jesus has hinted at and really is in in the recent time here has been very forward with I'm going to give my life I'm going to die this is the plan this is where it's all leading to so instead of maybe doubting Thomas maybe we should call him dozing off Thomas because it seems like he fell asleep in class a few times he missed this information this crucial important obvious information that he and these other other 11 guys should know by now is the plan yet he's like what do you mean you're going where are you going what do you mean we know where to go how we don't know where where you're going where we're going what's going on so it's really dozing thomas here because he should know he's got a lot of questions he's playing catch up in his mind not not the kind you put on your hot dog right he's he's trying to catch up with what jesus is saying here he's got some questions but then the third account is the most famous of all and it is really where Thomas gets this nickname, Doubting Thomas. So this is in John chapter 20. So Jesus, after John 14, after he talks with his disciples for a while, he is arrested, he is put on trial for his life, he is crucified, he does die, he is buried, and of course, on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, he rises from the dead. Soon after he rises from the dead, his disciples, or some of them, are kind of hiding together in this room, in this space somewhere. And John records that Jesus just appears to them in this room. The doors are locked. The windows are locked. He just appears. That's pretty cool. He shows himself to his disciples. He says, hey, guys, I'm back. I rose from the dead just like I said I would. Isn't that neat? You know, everything is different now. There's just one problem with this occasion, the fact that Thomas wasn't there. So in John chapter 20, starting at verse 24, John writes this. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. So clearly, Thomas is from Missouri. Because he says, show me, okay? He's like, I don't care what you guys say you saw. You've been under a lot of stress lately. You probably made it up. I'm not going to believe it until I see it for myself. So what happens? Here's what happens. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time, Thomas was with them. He probably never left their sight after that, just in case. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, let's stop there for just a second. So Jesus enters the room. Thomas is there, probably in the back corner, just waiting. And Jesus appears like before. The other disciples are like, oh, Jesus, it's you again. This is so great. This is so cool. You're back again. Let's, you know, let's party. This is awesome. And then Thomas is over there. And I just imagine probably here's what happens. Jesus is like, look at the other disciples over here. Have, you know, And then he knows Thomas is over here and he probably goes, What's up, Tom? 
Heard you've been doubting me lately, bro. Like, what's up with that? Now, I don't know if he really did that, uh, but we know what he did because here's what it actually says. I just imagine these things in my weird mind. You get into the mind of the craziness that's up here somewhere. There's not a lot there, but what is there is really strange, okay? So now you get to look into how I read things and view things and think about things. I just imagine him kind of looking like, sup, Tom, you know? So here's what happens. Then he said to Thomas, here's what he said, put your fingers here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. So Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless I see. And Jesus says, We'll just see about that, won't we, Thomas? And he shows up and says, Here, you wanted proof? Here's your proof. It, it was real. They were right. You know, it really happened. And here, here we go. This changes everything. So Thomas got the name Doubting Thomas. He was always thinking worst case scenario, let's go die with Jesus, you know. He was always questioning things. Well, what do you mean, you know, we know where you're going? Where are you going? And then here, you know, I'm not going to believe unless I see. He's going to, I'm going to doubt and doubt and doubt until I get you know, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, like proof, like vis- visual, physical, actual proof that this happened. I'm not going to believe until I see it. That's doubting Thomas. There was a temptation for us to be critical of him, especially when you think you were with him, Thomas, for two to three years. You were with him day in, day out. You saw the miracles. You heard the teaching. You saw all the things that he did. You were with Jesus by his side intimately for that long. How did you doubt so often? How did you miss so many obvious things? How did you have so many questions? But you and I, if we're honest, are a lot like Thomas because we have doubts, don't we, sometimes? We have questions, don't we, sometimes? We don't see things completely. We miss things that when we look back later in hindsight, we're like, I I can't believe that I didn't see that. I can't believe that I missed that was so obvious. So we're like Thomas. So what we're going to do with the rest of our time together today is, based on this information about Thomas, look at how we're like him and what that means. So we're going to focus on three different aspects of our own questions, like Thomas dealt with, like Thomas had. We're going to look at three aspects of them. First, we're going to look at how we should view our questions that we have about faith, about Jesus. Uh, We're going to look at how God views our questions about faith. And then third, we're going to look at what do we do with our questions. So how do we view our questions? How does God view our questions? And then what do we do about our questions? So here's the first, first main idea today about how we view our questions. And that is simply this simple statement. Questions aren't bad or wrong. Questions aren't bad or wrong. It's important that we say this from the outset. Questions are how we grow. Questions are how we learn. We are created with a certain curiosity. It's how we got to the moon. How can I get from here to there? Or really, why can't we get from here to there? What's stopping us? What do we not know that we can learn to get us to the moon? 
It's how we get cures for diseases and vaccines for diseases. We're asking questions. Well, what does this do to the body? What does it attack? How does it do it? Who's most vulnerable? We're hearing a lot about that in the news right now, aren't we? So there are scientists all over the world asking lots of questions. Are you saying those questions are bad? We'd never, we'd never say that. Questions are not bad in and of themselves. However, the questions that we ask and how we ask them are the key. So we can ask the wrong kinds of questions, or we can ask questions in the wrong kind of way, and we're going to get answers that don't make sense or that are incorrect. Uh, so that's what we're going to look at here for just a couple of minutes is the idea, and I'm going to get a little philosophical for just a minute, so hang with me for a few minutes here, because we're going to ask some questions about our questions, okay? We're going to ask questions about our questions. There's two main questions that we need to ask about our questions. Now, they're not bad, but we have to ask the right questions in the right way. Here's the first question that is crucial about your questions, and that is, are you asking honest questions honestly? Are you asking honest questions honestly? You know, uh, attorneys are trained. Now, I'm not an attorney, but I've watched enough movies to know this must be true, okay? Uh, attorneys are trained that when they're examining or cross-examining a witness on the stand, you don't ask a question of that witness unless you already know the answer to it. You don't want any surprises. You don't want them to have information that you don't know because you're trying, you're trying to lead them to get you certain information that you already know that you want them to say. You're not, as the attorney, you're not the witness, but they are, so you want them to say what you know they know, okay? So sometimes, though, we can live that way, and that's not good. Another example of that is in how we consume our news. Now, this is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just how it is. Typically, no matter how you view anything politically or socially, typically we consume certain news sources that we align with already, typically. There are occasions where we go off and do this, or we, you know, you'd say opposition research. What's the other side saying? How are they phrasing the headlines? Typically, though, we will consume news and media in a way that is what we would call confirmation bias. They're going to say things that we already agree with. So we're not learning anything new in particular per se. It's just confirming what we already believe, what we already think we know, what we already know. And again, we, we should not live life this way. We cannot ask big life questions in that way. That's unfair. If you ask, if you're trying to make a decision and you ask a question about that decision that you kind of already know what you think, you haven't learned anything. You haven't really investigated the other side of what could happen if I make that decision. You're just, it's again, confirmation bias. It's not a good way to live. It's, not, it's no way to grow as a person, as a Christian, as a disciple or follower of Jesus. You have to be honest with the questions that you ask. Uh, there's another sort of way in which we do that. And that is in this riddle. It's a simple riddle, but the riddle is this. Can God make a rock too big that he can't lift it? It's an impossible question, okay? Because if God can make a rock too heavy, then he can't do everything because he can't lift something. However, if it's impossible for him to make a rock that he can't lift, then he also can't do everything because there's something that he can't create or that he can't do. 
Sometimes we're guilty of this as well with the questions that we ask about big life things or especially with faith. We'll ask a question that's just impossible or a question that we know there's not going to be a good answer to. And so when we don't get an answer, we're just like, see, this God thing must not be real. Now I'm an atheist now. Boom. It's not a fair way to ask a question. We have to ask questions fairly. So what does it really mean to ask questions honestly? Well, really it means, is the question truly unbiased? Am I coming at it fair? And also, uh, it means, does this question really matter to me? See, it's, it's, it's unfair. A way that would be unfair is if we just Google, you know, questions about God that no one can answer. Boom. And then your faith is shattered by this Google search that takes you who knows where to what site. It's interesting that I had a, a, an occasion like this several years ago. I happened to meet a couple of guys from a different faith background and we struck up some conversations. We met two, three times, uh, maybe two or three, four times even. And uh, they recommended that I read some stuff about their faith background, okay? That's different than mine. And so I did, and I read some other things about their belief systems, and I read an, another book about, you know, some of the founders of their faith. And, and uh, as I read it, I just came across some questions, some inconsistencies, because it's like, well, you say that this is your belief, but your own literature says this. How do you reconcile that difference? Or, you know, just whatever. So I'm trying to come at it fairly, but I'm seeing these things. I have these questions. So we get together. I mentioned some of these questions to them, and their response is, what websites have you been visiting? What have you been Googling? You know, these anti-websites about our belief system. And I'm like, hey, I read the stuff you gave me, I now I I have a college degree. I have a four-year degree in biblical studies. Okay, so I have my own way of thinking about faith. That I'm not trying to view my my view into yours. I'm just seeing that yours doesn't. To me, I'm trying to find out how you make these differences work work out. Okay, that's all I'm doing. So we have to come at questions of faith fairly, objectively. And here's the second part about questioning our questions. That is, are your conclusions consistent? Now, as you ask deep questions of life or deep questions of faith, you may come across conclusions that you don't like. You may come across answers that you don't find satisfactory because it doesn't match with what you've always believed or thought. Can I encourage you? That's not always a bad thing. Sometimes your questions will lead to more questions. That's not a bad thing. This life of faith and following Jesus and being a disciple, which means learner, means you're going to be asking some questions, hopefully, along the way. You're going to need some clarifications. That's not wrong. It's not bad. Now, it doesn't mean that your questions then should lead to, well, I don't believe this anymore. Because typically, if you're true, if you're searching for actual, legitimate, objective truth, it's not going to lead you to abandoning faith. Just going to be honest. If you're looking for objective truth, it's probably not going to lead you completely astray. It may change the way you view a certain aspect of faith or a certain topic or whatever, but if you're looking objectively, not trying to, well, I'm going to ask this impossible question so I'm never satisfied, so I can say God isn't real or God isn't fair or God isn't nice, 
I would say go back and make sure you're asking fair questions in a fair way. But there are times where you're going to be stretched by seeing things in a new way or learning information from a different source. Now, you want to check sources and you want to make sure it's reliable. You might want to, you know, double check and triple check. That's fine. But the questions aren't bad. Those things that are different than what you grew up believing or understanding things to mean, that's not always bad. It's going to stretch us and help us to grow. So if we're asking honestly and seeking truth, then we're learning. We're being stretched. We're growing in our faith. That's good. We don't want to be complacent. We want to keep asking questions. It's fine. And that's maybe a problem with the Christian church uh, in the last 50, 60 years is we're afraid to ask questions. Oh, you can't ask that question. Oh, you can't talk about that topic in church. Oh, you can't address that. That's off limits. Like, nope, let's ask the questions that we care about. Let's seek truth objectively. Let's check our sources, check our heart, check our motivation. And as we honestly pursue truth, I believe we will find it. But that comes with asking and having questions. But then what does God think about our questions? Interesting. Here is what God thinks about our questions. God isn't offended by questions, but God also isn't obligated by our questions. As you read the Bible overall, you will see tons of, not just Thomas with questions or doubts, tons of questions. In the Psalms, over and over, you're going to read in Psalm after Psalm, God, why have you abandoned us? God, why have you turned your face from us? God, why are you displeased with us? Like, big questions. Like, God, why are the righteous people suffering and the wicked prospering? The psalmist asks questions like that all the time. The Old Testament book of Job is this whole dialogue of questions about human suffering, about God's justice, about fairness, about holiness, about living a life of faith and what that means and what we can expect. It's constantly question after question after question. Even the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk has questions. He starts out this book by saying, God, I cry to you violence, and why do you not answer? And I cry, hey, God, things aren't looking good, and where are you? God is not offended by these questions. In fact, he responds to them, which we'll talk about more in just a minute. Uh, so with Job, at the end of Job, he responds. Now his answer, though, again, He's not offended by questions, but he's also never obligated by questions. Because to Job and his friends who talk and ask and answer and debate, uh, he says, hey, I'm God. I know what I'm doing. I'm in control. The end. It's an answer, but it's not. And that's just how it ends. With Habakkuk, who says, God, where are you? God says, hey, Habakkuk, I have a plan. I'm in control. Trust me. And then the plan he has, Habakkuk doesn't like, so he has more questions. God says, hey, this is my plan. You wanted a plan. I have a plan. Deal with the plan. So God's not offended by questions, but he's not obligated as well. You and I have questions for God all the time. Most of our prayer probably are these types of questions. Questions like, God, where were you in that situation? Or God, where are you now? You might, your, your question might be, God, I'm sick, I'm ill, God, I'm scared, God, I'm tired, God, I'm doubting, God, I'm suffering, God, I'm confused. These, these types of big life, real world faith questions. Let me encourage you again, God is not offended by your questions. 
but he's also not obligated to do anything about your questions. So let me just make this statement. It sounds like a bummer, but there's good news to it. The truth is, God owes you nothing. God owes me nothing. We're created. We exist. That's it. Everything else from God is icing on the cake. It's a bonus. It's God's grace. Everything else is God's grace, okay? Um, And again, it does sound like a bummer, but here's the good news, and we see this in the life of Thomas, this experience with Thomas, is that God's lack of obligation makes his involvement with us that much more amazing. The fact that God's not obligated to do anything for me, but the fact that he does so much for me should make that incredible. We should begin to see God in that way. The fact that he sent his son Jesus to this earth to die for our sin that we committed against him, he didn't have to do that, but he did. The fact that he sent the Holy Spirit who is still here to lead and guide and direct and encourage and empower us, that's God's grace. He doesn't owe us that, but he grants it to us by his grace. God does heal. So when your question is, God, I'm sick, will you heal me? Sometimes he does. God does speak through Scripture, even through times of prayer. He'll give you an encouragement or a word uh, that's going to be for you. He still speaks today. God does deliver. God does answer prayer. He's never obligated to, but the fact that he does is incredible. It's incredible. Uh, And it comes back really to Psalm 8, verse 4, in which the psalmist says, What is man that you are even mindful of him? What, What are human beings that you care for them? So I feel like sometimes we feel like God owes us an answer. I'm entitled to an explanation, and God's like, not for me, you're not. Sorry, that's not the rule. It's not the way this game is played. Thanks for playing, okay? He's not offended by questions, but he's never obligated either. I'd also encourage you in this same vein this week to read Psalm 103. Psalm 103, it kind of fleshes out the same idea where it talks about God as loving, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's kind. Because again, he's never obligated to do anything, but the fact that he is involved in our lives is amazing. That's what's crazy about um, the appearance of Jesus to Thomas. Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless I see. Jesus doesn't owe Thomas an appearance. He doesn't owe Thomas an explanation, but he gives it to him anyway. That's the grace of Jesus that Thomas experienced that I believe we experience all the time. Part of it is, is, is do we notice when God speaks to us? Do we take time to hear him speak, hear his voice, spend time with him? He will speak. He will move. He will act. He will not stay silent forever if we're listening for him, if we're waiting for him. It takes that intentional sort of time with him but he does he's not offended by questions but he's not obligated but the fact that he does enter into our lives is incredible so here's the third thing as we bring it home that is what do we do with these questions what do we do with them okay Uh, here's my encouragement my encouragement is you can continue on even with questions you can continue on even with questions Again, let's go back to Thomas. He did have a lot of questions. He did have some serious doubts, so much so he's called Doubting Thomas. But he didn't let those questions keep them from faith in Christ. He didn't let those questions keep him from fulfilling God's plan for his life. 
There's some debate on what Thomas did and where he went and where he ministered, because some of the source material is, you know, in question or is debated. You know, there's some speculation that he went and preached in modern-day Turkey and Iran. There's even some uh, sources that say he went and ministered in China. Uh, There's also quite a bit to show us that he actually ministered most of his time in India, and that's eventually where he gave his life. He was speared to death in the end. In doing, here's the cool thing. Thomas had all these doubts and questions and unknowns, yet he spent the rest of his life preaching about Jesus, telling others to have faith. Hey, do what I didn't do. Have faith in Jesus who you've never met, never seen. I knew him and I need, still needed proof, right? That he gave his life. He devoted. He had the questions, but he continued on. So, What I would encourage us to do is the same thing. Don't let doubt deter your faith. Don't let doubt deter your faith. You will always have questions. That's good. You will always uh, have unanswered questions. That's okay. You will always uh, have questions you don't like the answers to. That's okay. You're never going to see the full picture of your life or existence or the universe. That's okay. Here's the key. If you wait until all your questions are answered to start living a life of faith or to progress in your faith, you'll be waiting forever because you'll never have all the questions answered. You'll never have everything discovered. And honestly, that's not faith anyway. If you, that's what Jesus told Thomas, hey, you believe because you've seen, that's not faith. But blessed are those who believe without seeing, because that's faith. That's what Hebrews 11 says. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith means that I continue on my journey without having all my questions answered. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith means I'm not quite sure, but I'm going to follow Jesus anyway. I'm maybe not even completely convinced, but I'm going to trust him anyway. It's kind of the scale thing. Uh, I, 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 it's not completely in tilted here, but there's enough that I'm going to go on it. That's how we live life anyway. I don't have all the answers to anything, but I still live life. I don't have all the answers to faith, but I still live a life of faith. So in your life, you're going to have questions about the Bible. Does that mean you throw it out and forget the whole thing? I don't understand this, so I'm just through. No, it means you ask more questions. It means that you just continue by faith to believe this is God's word. I'm going to trust it. And what I can understand, what I can wrap my mind around, I'm going to apply to my life. There are times we don't have, we have unanswered prayers. Does that mean that we just like, okay, God, I'm done. You didn't answer my prayer in time. The time's up. The clock's ticked. The beeper's going. I'm done. We're done. It's over. No. It just means that we have to continue praying. Jesus tells a story about, he calls it the unjust judge, where he says there was a judge. He didn't care about God or man. One day there was a poor widow who came to him and said, I've been wronged. Would you hear my case? And he said, nope. So she comes back the next day. Judge, knock on the door. Hey, judge, it's me, the widow again. I've been wronged. Will you please hear my case? He says, no. He's an unjust judge. He doesn't care about God or about people. She keeps going day after day after day, knocking on his door. Judge, will you please hear my case? Finally, he says, oh my goodness, just so you'll stop, woman, I will hear your case. 
And Jesus says, if this unjust judge who doesn't care about God, doesn't care about this woman or anybody else, if he will hear her case, if he will listen and answer, won't your loving, perfect, heavenly Father hear you when you pray? He says that he told them this so they would pray and not quit praying. You don't have answered prayers all the time? Keep praying, keep asking, keep believing. God is good. There's always going to be unknowns. In life, in faith, in your relationships, and your decision-making, we cannot be frozen in fear because of unknowns. We have to walk by faith. We have to continue on even with our questions. And you can do it. You can do it. Thomas had questions, a lot of them. But in the end, he walked by faith. You have questions, I'm sure, I know, all, all sorts of questions, all sorts of maybe doubts or fears or unknown, unanswered prayers. You feel like God's not even listening. He is. You feel like God won't answer. At some point, he will. In some way, he will. I don't know how, when, where, how, I don't know, but he will, okay? You may be frustrated with, I can't figure this out. I can't understand this. Keep asking questions. Keep praying. Keep believing, as we wrestle honestly with our questions, as we continue on despite our questions, God will reveal himself to us and he will guide us down the path that will fulfill his plan for our lives. That's the life of faith and that's the life of a true disciple and follower of Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for this discussion. I know it's been a little different than normal. I know it's maybe been a little deeper than normal, maybe even to some a little personal, talking about our questions and our doubts and our insecurities and unanswered prayers and difficulties that we faced. But God, I pray that we would take this to heart. I pray that we would understand questions aren't bad, but I pray that the questions that we ask are fair questions, asked in an honest way as we truly seek objective truth, as we're truly trying to get to your heart, truly trying to get answers that really matter, not just confirmation bias, but questions that really lead us closer to you. Help us to know questions aren't wrong or bad. You're not mad when we ask questions. You're not angry when we, you know, pray. You're not angry even when we get frustrated. You're not angry when we doubt. But we have to also know that we just have to trust. It's, li it's a life of faith. Even if we don't get an answer, we have to trust. Even if the answer we get is not satisfactory, we have to continue on in this life of faith. There's no white flag. There's no turning back. It's just a consistent forward motion into more of you. And that comes through questions. Questions. No matter what they are, no matter how personal, no matter how dire, no matter how difficult, help us to always ask those questions seeking your ultimate truth. And as we do that, as we push on through doubt, questions, fear, unknowns, uncertainty, you will lead us and guide us down the path you've laid for us. You will reveal yourself to us. There is, there is more to come. There is more that we can know about who you are, how you work, whether we know it here or on the other side of eternity. One day, we will see you face to face. And in a way, all questions will be answered in some form or fashion. So I pray that we would continue on boldly in our faith along this, this walk of faith, this journey of faith, even with our questions. 
because you're with us every step of the way, leading and guiding us on this path of following Jesus. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, thanks for joining us for First Century Church Online. Uh, again, I know it's a little bit different this week. We may have to watch it again to kind of get through everything we talked about, but uh, glad you're here with us being a part of uh, this series. We'll finish it up next week, and I hope to see you there, First Century Church Online, next weekend. God bless you, and have a great week.